Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is live, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving Iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving Iron time and time again. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 151, now part of the Global Ag Network. This week I've got two guests, um, Dirk Mitchell from Mitchell Equipment and Sean Skaggs of ImpactLegacyAndMeaning.com. Dirk and I talk about used equipment segmenting and how we're implementing those ratings for used equipment during the trade process. We talk about everything from the quote-unquote certified pre-owned units to machines that we know we're going to end up taking into an auction block before they actually leave our lots. Then Sean and I uh, discuss his new venture, and that that venture is something I'm pretty excited about. It's called ImpactLegacyAndMeaning.com. Check that out at his new website. Um, Sean's created a peer group that focuses on how um, not only to leave a legacy for your family, but also how to make an impact on your community. I'm really excited about this peer group, and I'm looking forward to his new podcast, Legacy Impact and Meaning, and it's available everywhere podcasts are found. Sean has a free personal assessment for the listeners of the Moving Iron Podcast at impactlegacyandmeaning.com forward slash moving iron. I would encourage everyone to check it out. You can find the Moving Iron Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, the Global Ag Network, and of course, movingironllc.com. Make sure you hit me up on our on all my social media sites at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'd love to hear you guys' feedback. So I hope you enjoy the show, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks a lot. Moving iron. Hello, and we're back, and I've got Dirk Mitchell here from uh, Mitchell Equipment up in uh, north central in Nebraska. Is that the best way to describe where you're at, Dirk? That's correct. Right. Old town Atkinson. Atkinson, Nebraska. Dirk is a yep. uh, single store uh, case dealer up there, and uh, they do they do pretty good business out of there. He's he's got a lot of stuff going. You probably check. He can hit uh, hit Dirk up on Twitter. What's your what is your Twitter handle, Dirk? I, I think it's just uh, I think it's just at Dirk Mitchell. At Dirk Mitchell. So you can always I always check that out. Dirk's always got stuff going on up there. If he's doing a demo or a startup or just showing you what he's got in his lot. Good place to go see what's what's happening up there. So, well, I wanted Absolutely. to get I wanted to get Dirk on here, and because this is something I'm struggling with myself, and looking at equipment, I know everybody says they're doing this, and, and then everyone's got it all figured out, but I I have yet to see really anyone have this kind of method in place. I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I haven't really ever seen like a full bore kind of approach to it. So I'm trying to get one figured out. And I figured, hey man, Dirk's the Dirk's the man with the plan, so I got to get him on here and have him have him lead me through this this process. So um, today, what I wanted to talk about was um, kind of the classification of used equipment before you actually even get it to your lot. So kind of like an A B C D or or one two three or however you want to however you want to phrase it, but like you know A's being a uh, kind of like a certified pre owned approach to it, and then a a, a D being something or see how far down you want to go is the uh 
we're not doing anything to this thing when it comes in and we're going to buy it for um, auction value or less and that's exactly where it's going to go when we get it so Dirk I just wanted to get get you on here and kind of have you uh, walk me through kind of maybe some of the philosophies you have when it comes to that and maybe some um, approaches you have to your used equipment when you're looking at it at a, at a segment level yeah so I so first I would warn the warn the readers or listeners that uh when you said I had a plan that is that is one hundred percent incorrect. So but I will You and me both, buddy. I will speak for <laughs> I will speak for what what I think we should be doing in the because that you know, that dynamic has changed so much with the internet. Right we used to kind of categorize it when it was just everything kind of went back in the local market and we really did it unknowing. It was just, it was just, you had them certain customers that traded in, you know, they traded in the cream of the crop and people, people watched for those or asked around when that was happening. And that was kind of the, that was the category before. And somehow we've, I think you've got to get that story back. Um, it's it's way harder to do on the internet because nobody, you know, right? A guy two hundred miles away that is a prime candidate, he doesn't know your your top three customers, and you know that doesn't mean anything to him. And and they all once they get their nice detailed cleaned up pictures, they all look the same out there. So. We got to take a different approach, I think, and I don't know what that is, but this categorizing it, I think, is one of the first steps, and that's something I've been looking at as well. Yeah, that that's the what you said there is such a key a key thing when you talk about your customer. So your local customer base knows that that John Smith Farms, when his stuff comes in, it is a you know been shedded. It always goes back in the shed every night. Um, Gets gets run through the winter service program every year, and everything gets fixed. Um, yep. the, the the oil is changed fifty hours before it needs to be changed, and you know, yep. there's there's more grease in inside the grease certs than there is in any any grease tube you have in your in your store, right? That's that kind of stuff, right? Yep. On the flip side of that, you've got the guy that trades the stuff in, and everybody knows that stuff from, you know. John Q. Farmer, you know, is is the worst possible thing you could buy, right? And that's the uh, yep. It rode hard, put up wet. Um, you know, he's uh he trades in a pretty regular cycle, and he knows he knows how much he needs to put into everything to make it work, and he's not really too concerned about it because hey, you know, in, in the end of the season I'm trading it, or next year I'm trading it, or whatever. It didn't really matter. I'm gonna I'm gonna run it as hard as I can, get the most out of it, and he doesn't own a grease gun, right? You have that customer. Right. So the thing about that is you could have that same customer be the one-year-old, two-year-old trade-in type guy or, you know, in, in both spectrums of that. I think when I look at this, where I think people get hung up at is everything that's one-year-old that's got less than 500 hours on it, that's a, that's an A. When And that's not necessarily true because to your point of the Internet, you know, you almost need to have these customers come on and sit down across and, and, and be able to explain that story of what they do to their equipment, when do they do it, how often do they do it. Um, 
especially the ones that you know are going to be a, a premium machine. Those, those are the, yep. That's going to tell that story. So if you can get that customer to sit down and, and basically answer all the questions that you're going to get from the guy on the Internet, when that guy on the Internet calls you, man, you're already 80% of that thing being sold. Now you're just kind of talking about you're just in the haggling part of the, of the conversation. Have you ever thought yeah, about doing exactly. something like that? I have, yeah. Um, the bi- the biggest thing is uh, is the time constraint, but really, we got to get we got to get through that. A part of it, I think, is you know, I I think the salesman's got to administer that, so we need to do some training on you know what to do and how to do it. And, but I can tell you that if you just had a couple minutes with the guy, just an unedited raw version. I think it would, you know, we, it's not like we got a it video editors hired to right. pull us off. You know, it's Do it on your phone. IPhone and yeah. it's, it's going to be, it's going to be plum adequate in my mind. But so to, to date, we have not, we have not done any of that. The, the only thing we've, we've done which we really haven't got posted out there yet, but tried to, we take a bunch of videos of this equipment working and then, you know, we don't typically don't know at that time when they're trading, but mm-hmm. if you can somehow get that saved, I think that would be another, another point you can, if you had that stuff to be able to throw out there, seeing it actually live and working, um, that would that would bode well for a guy as well. So yeah. those are those are some of the things we'd like to get to. That that's uh that's a good point. I was talking about that the other day about having that you know during here you know corn harvest is coming up here and we've got a drone and if you can have that that drone fly over a machine and and you know watch it out there just cut didn't have to do anything special just go watch it work in the field and, right. then, and then when the machine comes in you can have. 30 or 45 seconds of, of that machine working in the field, it kind of does bring some some real kind of, you know, you know, you always hear that, let me see what it looks like in its, in its work clothes type of thing. And and yep. that's a pretty good way to do that. And and like you said, it's pretty powerful when you can put that out there and you have, a, you know, just a, like you said, a, a minute or two with the customer talking about what he does with his typical day when he, when he has his machine out. And then, you know, like you said, that machine out there working in the field. So that would be, uh, I think that's, that's kind of the wave of the future. You know what I mean? Even, even our local customers are going to want to, would want to see that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it works, works for everybody. So here's kind of what I'm doing. So I'm trying to look at, my used equipment and I'm trying to figure out now granted this is going to be a cultural change right so we're talking about looking at everything basically through a microscope and then you're going to classify this stuff when it comes back in and it's going to be you know an A is basically we're not going to do anything to it but check and top off fluids do any warranty work that needs to be done to it and any you know, really doesn't need any anything done to it through the yep. shop, right? So that's going to be a pretty kind of just a premium machine. And again, you might have two 500-hour combines sitting next to each other 
or 250-hour combines sitting next to each other, and one is going to need more than the other. So that that A over here, you know the exact same one's an A and one's a B. You know, you're going to have yeah. to have some kind of like a year and hour range kind of break off and, and do there. So I guess give me your definition of what you think that, that premium A machine would look like. So I, to me, you can see them the the one the one way I was trying to look at it was so I think I think nearly every manufacturer has their certified pre owned program. Oh yeah. Yeah. So so that we try to utilize that as much as we can. Um I don't know that I don't know that the customer base really cares about that yet I, to me i think you got to get it you, you got to get it in terms of your inspection process and it, to me you almost need to categorize them it may fall under the cpo but then you've got your own grading system you know through the help of knowing your customers and you know going through the service mm-hmm. department because just like you said, not each CPO combine is going to be the same. We can get them in the program. Right. You know, fluid's good. We fixed them up, but they're still, to me, they're still the cream of the crop and maybe the, the second tier. And, and hopefully, hopefully we got them priced as such. And I think, I think that's, that's where that needs to come from. And we were, uh, we were talking about doing our own, you know, kind of branding our own certification mm-hmm. where we'd either do all the work or at least, you know, this one, this is exactly, you know, we went through it with a fine tooth comb and a lot of our, like on our harvest equipment, we do have inspections on all those. And, and to be honest, I, trying to find the right answer to me you go through that combine with a fine tooth comb and you you got a guy on the phone and you throw it out there on the internet hey this thing you know we went through everything on this and you can spend twenty two thousand on this and it'll be like new right some guys that works great some guys like oh my gosh i need twenty two thousand there's no way right i ain't you know i ain't getting in i ain't getting into that deal i'm gonna go find the salesman that tells me it only needs eight. Right. And yeah. It, all the while that, you know, that one might need 25 realistically. So that's, that's a struggle, uh, that I've seen and, and capitalizing on that has not, not happened yet. But, uh, I think we've got to get to some sort of branding and, and you've got to, you've got to have some, uh, and it's going to take a while, I guess, for for people to get trained. You right. know, I'll start locally and then spread its way out. That those machines truly are what they say they are. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing too. That's my idea of what the A is. The A is that thing that is it, the only reason it's not new is because somebody used it last season, type of thing. You know what I mean? It's so it's a right. pristine, perfectly maintained piece of equipment. That's that's ready to go to the field like you said i think a lot of guys wow in my opinion scare customers off on equipment yeah 
you know, it's a combine. I, you, you take a brand new combine and spend a one year old combine and spend fifteen grand on it if you really wanted to. You know what I mean? Fixing every little hey. solitary thing, you know, just nitpick it to death. But the other side of that is on those machines, those five and six year old machines that where they kind of hit those those critical uh, reconditioning points. You can spend twenty five or thirty grand on one of those combines pretty easy. Now the difference yep. is what people get scared off in that is yeah it might be twenty five or thirty thousand bucks but it's saying like you know we got a work order here for thirty grand but our shop's saying about ten of that is actually stuff that needs to be done before the next season comes and then there's another probably yep. eight thousand bucks or nine thousand bucks of stuff that needs to be done probably at the end of next season and then the rest of that yep. stuff is just you know it's kind of getting there you might have another season or two or it might be some cosmetic thing or whatever it is yep and i think a lot of sales staffs are that way with that don't break it down like that when they're talking to that customer you know what i mean and that's what i think kind of going down the same line of this conversation you know that would be a b or a c machine right it's one of those machines, right. you know, it's a good solid machine. It's a machine that you want to have back in your AOR or a machine that you want to sell out to someone that's got, that's looking for that three to five year old piece of equipment or that five to seven year old piece of equipment. That's where that stuff's going to fall into there. And, and I think, and realistically, that's, those are the used, used equipment that you're going to make, you have the best opportunity to make money on, not only from a, yeah. from a sales perspective, sales department side, but also on your parts and service side. Because you get the opportunity to walk through that customer, and maybe instead of him walking away going, "That thing's a pile of crap. It needs thirty grand." Well, it needs ten, right? So now you have some yep. negotiation points and kind of doing that. So I guess part of that spectrum is something that you're looking at there. When you're looking at those machines, you're looking at that reconditioning. Are you figuring that in, like your deal, or do you have that kind of a la carte kind of approach of well, here's what it is, the way it sets, and then if you want to spend $10,000 more, we're going to do this and that and the other. I guess, what's your approach to that? So I've, I've done it. I've done it both ways, and it's uh, it's kind of based on the, the premise that we're talking about. It's, it's just not in, in wording anywhere, but... Right. So you'll... You know, we've... Right now, we got a couple combines that are priced before the repairs, and that's at a price point that generates some calls. And then that's the the second step is a lot of those will ha- will say we've got ten thousand dollars that in our budget the guy can kind of pick whatever he wants. But right. that hasn't been as successful as as I thought it may. Um, a lot of the stuff that we late model stuff, the first second trades that we typically keep in our in our area, we've we've about got you know we've I've kind of got figures that I use for one year old, two year old, and somewhat some hour ranges on harvesting equipment's the big one that we just you know it's almost a guarantee that this is the law of averages. If we want this thing fixed back up to our standards, right? this is what we're going to spend. And that's typically how them late model ones are priced. Is right. We use the term field ready almost to a point that it's, 
unprofitable. We, you know, we're spending spending too much on them as they come back in. But you know, it's just something the guys got to keep tweaking on. Yep. Now, that's why I think, like on that A, that price that you have out there is is you know it's the field ready through the shop turnkey ready to go type machine, right? You know, it's it's a yep. and, and probably in the, in the biggest sell point in that is too is. It needs to be because you're asking three hundred and fifty thousand bucks, three hundred eighty thousand exactly. bucks for a combine. You know, I use combine, so someone's going to expect it to be a, a pretty decent machine. Yep. I mean, it's going to be. The only reason I'm buying this one is because I can't afford the other one hundred twenty grand to get the new one, right? Right. That's that's why they're looking at that one. When I look at the B, to me, that's when I think you can start playing some of those, some of those games. Like you know, you have the the $25,000 work order and 10 of it needs to be done. And maybe you have it priced at, you know, 15 or $20,000 less than what you see in the normal marketplace. But the idea being that, okay, cool. So you want to do this. This is an as is price, the way it sets. And here's, you know, we got a $10,000 budget and we can, we can be as creative with that as you want to be. Right. We can wrap those costs into your financing or hell, I can give you a credit that you can come and use whenever you want to, a local guy type of thing, you know. I think right. it gives you a lot more flexibility during the sales process to, to make things happen. Now, that being said, when somebody from wherever, Iowa, calls you and says, hey, I mean, I see your combine, I like that price, um, I want to I want to buy that, what's been done to it? And you say, oh, well, nothing, that's just the way it sets, and, you know, here's the work order, I'd be happy to share that with you, and all of a sudden, they're turned off, thinking that, "Well, I still got to spend another ten grand to get it going." And I mean, yes and no. Yep. I mean, the only reason it's quit working is because someone turned the key off, right? So I'm exactly. sure, I'm sure it'll yep. still go to the field and and cut some some corn or pick some corn or cut some wheat or whatever it is you're doing. And you know that that conversation sometimes helps, but I don't know. It's a it's such a it's such a fine line, and like you said. Although any money that you pour into that reconditioning wise is not necessarily a a, a fact that you're going to get it back, right? So it's it's yep. one of those things where you got to do that. So I guess it's kind of like what you're saying. It's a double edged sword, and you kind of have to figure out what your approach is going to be. But it's also your sales folks have to buy into it as well. So what is your? I guess what do you have some sales guys that think they can't sell anything unless it's just a hundred percent reconditioned, or do you have some that like to play that? Well, let's let's kind of banter back and forth on on what we're going to do when it comes to the shop. So, <clears throat> so culturally, where we stand is we've typically for everyone to feel good about it leaving. You know, we we just feel like we have to recondition it to death, and and uh, and that that's that's worked well to a point because that's got us a reputation that when it leaves this guy's not going to have a lot of issues right off the bat or at least in the first year or two you know so there's that that used to work really well until you were relying on internet based sales and sales leads from out of the area to get rid of some of this equipment, then that's really when this process has to be means that you've got, basically we've just got to adapt to the way that people are buying equipment now, which is different than 
was vastly different from 10 years ago. So there's, I think we've got to pick up the pace a little bit and learn, learn how, uh, learn how them guys are buying equipment now. And, and that's one of the things that I think we've got to learn to get better at. Yeah. It, it is playing that game, you know, <clears throat> either a parts and service card or whatever to bring the unit back and, or, you know, like you said, play the negotiations again. Because we've seen some of them, you get what I would call the third tier. It's kind of a cash outright deal. A lot of them guys that are buying it, they don't mind saving the money, doing it themselves. They see that repair cost. You know, give them uh, give them the parts that's needed right. to go do it, and, and they'll they'll work on it at their leisure. You know, you got to you got to find ways to to bridge that gap and close in deals. And that's, I think that's what we got to learn how to do better. Yep. And that's to that point, when you think about it, I mean, you tell a guy it's 25,000 bucks to work on a combine about 10 or 12,000 of that is the, uh, is the parts. The rest of that's labor. You know what I mean? So, right. Yep. you know, the, the handy savvy, you know, buyer out there that can go fix his own stuff or honestly, you know, I have, hired man that's that's a pretty pretty technically pretty mechanically inclined fella um he can pay him half of what it costs to do the shop to change out you know sprockets and chains and augers right. and those kind of things you know the stuff that doesn't require a lot of diagnostic stuff you know and and hooking computers into it and those kind of things and those are the kind of stuff that that uh that really eat up parts and labor both you know what i mean so yep no, nah, just like I think you got to think it's a good a good point you brought up there that you know we as this kind of equipment space is evolving into how the digital market is is affecting it. Um, sometimes I feel like our industry is, has kind of stayed the same, and hoping that everything is going to keep kind of going down the same path and and kind of watch. They, everyone kind of knows we need to change, but it's hard to get that that change to happen. You know what I mean? Right. And it's yeah. a it's a growth a growth thing that we have to figure out. You know, honestly, you have to figure that out because if you're relying on your your own area to uh, digest all your all your trade ins, um, you're probably going to have to really pare back the amount of new stuff you're selling, just because uh, yep. you don't you don't have the you don't have the used buyers like you had ten years ago to, to come and buy exactly. that stuff. Yeah. So when you look at that what we would call a kind of a C level or a D level, however far down you want to go on the list, as far as your, your uh, uh, classifications go, when you get to that, you know, 10 year old machine, this is kind of my opinion. When I get to that 10 year old machine, more than likely that machine's kind of worth what it's worth. When you start looking like a 2009 or 10 or 11 model machine, um, they usually have a ton of hours on them by now, especially with what's happened over the last five years with with the with the trade cycles not being there like they've been. Some guys picking up more ground and just pushing their machines harder, type of stuff, and they've got a few more hours on them than you would anticipate seeing in, in a year over year basis. Those machines, to me, are a uh, they're definitely an as is where is approach. Um, yep, you know, get the inspection out, figure out what's wrong with them, really 
advertise uh, this is what it needs to get done. If you want to really make it brand new again, here's how much you can spend. But quite frankly, if you're looking at a, a combine or a chopper or, or anything like that, I mean, you can kind of, where do you stop? You know what I mean? It's just a, you, before you quote unquote make it new again. So right. I guess what, what's your thought on that and, and what's, your, what's been your approach here of, of late on, on those machines? So what you what I see on on those types of equipment from just call it from two thousand mid two thousands to two thousand twelve, you you're exactly right. It it is what it is. And even when you get that one champion traded in that should be worth significantly more. Yeah, there's not as much opportunity there as what what I think that there should be. I mean, you might get on a hundred thousand dollar tractor if you've got the best one in the world. You might get another ten thousand. Right. Yep. And that, but that you know, so we can't really play that game. That very commoditized at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So you gotta. There's not as big a winners in there as what. It'd be nice if we could categorize that a little more, but it, it that just doesn't appear to me like that works, you know, as well in those categories. You get yeah. four and five years old, you know, I think you've got opportunities to do that, but it's it's really you got to be on the mark, you know. That you might get five thousand more and it'll sell the quickest, but you try to get twenty thousand more, you, you know. You may get it at some point, but you're going to have to to bear the carrying cost. It looks to right. me like so. Yeah, whatever you actually do make in the long run is going to be offset by your interest costs that you have sitting on the lot. Right. You know, right. Waiting for that that golden goose to come flying by is is not a good strategy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't tend to work out well in my in my experience. No, it. it, it never lands at my place anyway so it's it's a it's it's a tough one i mean you're, you're dealing with a customer that thinks his machine is worth on a you know some of these older combines you start looking at eighty thousand bucks seventy thousand yep. bucks ninety thousand bucks something like that and you know they they're looking at the price of a new one or a one or two year old one and they're like how's that possible and i'm saying well it's really just supply and demand that. Supply and demand thing right now. Yeah, just even know. looking and back at what they what they paid for that. It's three hundred, six hundred hours, and what it's worth today. They're they're uh, they're probably in as as big of sticker shock as what these guys that have kept doing it and seeing every single price increase and uh, you know the guys trading every one or two years. Yeah, you know that that used buyer he's he's in as much of or more of a sticker shock right now of, of any of them and that uh i just that's a tough conversation at times but you know it it is what it is we we can't continue to overpay for that stuff the the market is yeah the market segment's getting smaller and smaller on the number of guys that we've got to sell to yeah the market segment's getting smaller and smaller with the number of guys you have to work with, but yet the uh, the equipment, the amount of used equipment in that segment is growing every day. I mean, 
There's so yeah. many machines that fall in that 2014 to 2011 time frame. And yeah. it's just a big a big slug of equipment. Well, and also was a, those were record years for equipment to be produced too, you know, from any manufacturer. So there's there's right. just a there's just a ton of equipment out there, so well, good stuff as usual, Dirk. Man, we got a I think we solved about every world problem we had right now. I think we've got this all figured out after having this conversation. So, yeah, it sounded sounded really easy that last time, didn't it? I mean, it just it kind of just rolled right out. So all we got to do is just go out and make it happen, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right, man. If uh, if folks wanted to find Mitchell Equipment and wanted to reach out to Dirk, how would they do that? Yeah. So uh, websites MitchellEquip.com. Uh, Mitchell Equipment also has Twitter and Facebook. You can call directly into the office at 800-967-2591, and uh, we'll be happy to answer any questions or take care of any needs that anyone has. All right, oh, man. Well, Dirk, I appreciate you being on. and and uh, Yeah, thanks for having me, Casey. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, and we'll uh, hopefully we continue this conversation over beer sometime. Yeah, hopefully we get it figured out and something yeah. starts working. Yeah, you, you and me both. So, <laughs> All right, buddy. Take care of yourself. We'll catch you again. Sounds good. Thanks. Moving Iron. Hello, and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This is a special edition here with a special guest. I've got a good friend of mine by the name of Sean Skaggs, and I've known Sean for a little while here and got to know him a little better over the course of this past year. Um, he's been a guest on the podcast I don't know, two or three times now, Sean, and, and uh, he is actually getting ready to launch his own podcast, so as a fan of, of podcasts and, and especially a fan of guys that put out good content, uh, I wanted to get Sean on here and have him talk about his podcast a little bit. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Casey. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, having me on here and uh, helping me to uh, kind of get started with this. I uh, always loved your podcast and uh, you know the content that you put out as well, and so I really appreciate you kind of giving me a little bit of a platform here to talk to some people. No, man, I appreciate you. I think what you got here, Sean, is going to be good stuff. And, and like I said, you know, I, I think uh, I think the world of what you got going on here. So talk about your podcast, what's it called, how'd you come up with it, and kind of what's your overarching kind of thought process for the folks that listen to it. Sure. So my podcast is called Impact, Legacy, and Meaning. And so it's, uh, it's something that uh, isn't necessarily, or I guess the best way to say it is it doesn't fall right into that, you know, ag equipment lane, but we do talk a lot about uh, business and about mindset and about family and those kind of things. And so it's a little bit different than, than, what, uh, than what you're doing, where you're running into some really specific content that helps people with, you know, the problems that they have moving iron, moving used equipment, moving all those kind of things. I'm a little bit more focused on, how do we get through uh, the balance of life and work and family and try and make all that work and make the biggest impact that you possibly can in all those different places, all while still building a legacy. And whenever I say a legacy, I guess I don't mean a financial legacy per se, although we'll work on that too. Um, but more so that you are putting together something that your kids are going to be proud to tell their kids about so that they can have some stories that they can tell their kids that where they're proud of the things that you did, of the impact that you made, and the way that you participated in. Okay, all right. So, give me an example of 
of, of what like a what single podcast is going to be like. So you're going to have guests on that come on, and they're going to be from different spectrums and different realms of uh, of of kind of what you're hitting on here. How, like how uh, maybe some financial legacy building, like you talked about, or maybe uh, looking at how you how you work with your community and those kind of things. Is that is that kind of going to be the focus of your podcast? Well, yeah, and it's, there's going to be a lot of different, uh, I guess, a lot of different kinds of guests that I'll have on, and some of them are just going to be solo podcasts where I kind of have uh, a little bit of something to talk about, and, and those will usually be pretty short. Uh, I've already put a couple of those out, actually, but I've also got several guests lined up uh, to be on the podcast. Some of them are going to be fellow podcasters. Some of them are going to be, uh, you know, I've got a pastor theologian lined up. I've got some entrepreneurs lined up. I've got um, you know, several different people like that lined up, and, and it'll be from kind of all walks of, of life, uh, working on trying to get some guests that are really focused on mindset and on how to just better yourself every day. Mm-hmm. So where did you get to, where's your passion at to drive this from? Where you, where, I guess, what, what is the, uh, what's the internal mass that's pushing you forward on this project? Right. And that's, that's probably where we, we should start anyway is, uh, the best way I know to do it is to tell, you know, kind of the story of where this did come from. And so, uh, for people who don't know me, um, I've got five kids at home, uh, as crazy as that sounds, we've got a lot of kids. Um, we actually have adopted four and we're just a guardian for another one. But, um, but we, you know, we adopted our kids about 10 years ago. And so we've been kind of on this path. It's been a little bit crazy and a little bit hectic anyway, because we've got so many kids and they're involved in so many things. Um, but really it started to really hit me about a year ago, how little time we have. We were actually sitting at a, uh, a football booster club club banquet and we were doing all the regular football booster club things, recognizing coaches, recognizing players, um, recognizing, you know, school personnel. And we got to the point where the kids started to uh, go up on stage and they brought the freshmen up on stage and then they brought the sophomores up on stage. And my son was a sophomore. And then they just bring two more classes, juniors and seniors up there. And that's when it really hit me all of a sudden, holy cow, I've only got a couple more years left to make the biggest impact that I can on my son before he's you know gone out of the house and he's out in the world on his own. And then, you know, when, as I look at my other kids, uh, all of my other kids are teenagers as well. And so really, you know, at that point I had about a, about a six or seven year window left and all my kids were going to be out of the house. And there's so many things that I felt like I've procrastinated on, things that I should teach them, things that I want to do with them, all those different things. It really started to hit me just how short a window we have with our family to make that maximum impact that we can. But at the same time, we're trying to make the maximum impact that we can in our business, right? We're all trying to, uh, one, be able to pay for all the cars and all the Mm -hmm. college and and everything else that our kids participate in. And plus, we're also trying to build up, uh, you know, a little bit of a, I guess, a financial uh, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but basically build up some savings and some things like that so that you'll have something to retire on so that you can live the life that you want to live. And so trying to balance all those things is really difficult. And so I wanted to try and find a way that, one, I could learn a lot more, and two, so that I could help others to learn more as I learn. Because that's one of the things that I've always liked to do is as I'm learning things, I like to share. I like to try and teach a little bit or just share what I'm learning because if I can do that, then it's going to be it's going to stick with me a lot better than if I were just learning it by myself. Yeah. And so, uh, that's kind of where this thing spawned out of was that that thought process that I went through at that football booster club banquet. 
that started this whole thing and it's kind of snowballed from there as I've continued to try and build and learn and grow from it. And I want to just help other people to do the same. Yep. No, it is, it is. My, my kids are, uh, I got 13, 10 and, and seven, and it doesn't really feel like 13 years have gone by that, that, you know, you really sit back and look at it and, you know, I've got about eight more summers, maybe, you know, seven more summers, something like that to really spend, uh, with my oldest boy before he really gets out into the world and goes off to college and and then it's a kind of a whole different whole different scenario there so it, it is a uh it is a, a a cool thing and you know like you said spending that time and, and and doing those things teaching your kids what you want to you know my kid my oldest boy just passed hunter safety course two weekends ago and dove season opened up actually today we didn't we had too much stuff going on today to get out there but we're going to definitely hit it hard tomorrow so um that's one of those things I've been looking forward to for a long, long time is, is that interaction, you know, that both like I remember with my dad sitting out there on a, you know, chopped down tree someplace on some stump under a shade tree someplace and waiting for those dove to fly in and blast them. It was, a, that was something I've been waiting for for a long time. But, you know, like you said, it's hard to sit back and then, you know, balance all those things. You get your work life ratios and everything that goes into that. And, and making sure you get to all the all the ball games and and be part of the community as much as you can and do all that stuff. There's a there's lots of demands on time, so that's one thing I'm I'm really kind of excited about your podcast is, is hear some of these folks and what they're doing to kind of balance that work life uh, ratio out. Yeah, and I, and I don't know that it ever comes out to be a, a balance myself. I don't know if you can you know really mm-hmm. balance it or not, but maybe you it's can hard. blend them yeah. as possible, and uh, you know to try and make work a part of life and life a part of work as much as you can. Um, and something else you touched on just a second ago is another thing that's really hit me over the last couple of years. And you were talking about being a part of your community. You know, that's another thing that uh, over the last couple of years, I've lost a couple of my, my grandparents and, you know, they lived great lives. And so it, it's always sad to lose somebody, but it wasn't anything uh, necessarily unexpected with them. Although my grandmother passed pretty quickly after she found out that uh, she had cancer again. But the thing that really struck me was before those funerals, I had so many people coming up to me and telling me stories about things that they did and just the way that they had affected people, of the way that they had helped people, all kinds of things that I never even knew about. And, you know, as one does, whenever they go to a funeral, I started thinking about, you know, what are people going to say about me? Have I done enough to make that kind of an impact in our community? You know, how can I be more involved and, you know, really help the people of our community in such a way that I would be missed if I weren't here. And so uh, that's one of the other things that I really want to work on is building that, that personal legacy, um, something that, like I said earlier, that, that my kids are going to be proud to tell their kids. Um, not that I want want that for necessarily, you know, ego reasons, but uh, that I want that to, to be there for, as an example for them so that they can continue to be a part of the community and to make a big impact on the community. Right. No, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from there. So you have a couple different other things that you're doing. Uh, one that directly relates back to this, and then you have another one that's kind of a, well, I don't know. Let's start with this. So you have a, a, a weekly email you send out, and that weekly email has got all kinds of stuff in it. You talk about things that happened to you. Um, in the past and how you kind of relate some stuff back to it and, and then kind of a, a life lesson that you learned from it. So talk about your, your emails that you send out and then let's talk, let's hit, follow that up with the, the peer group you have that goes along with uh, what you're doing with your podcast. 
Sure. So the the emails are something that I started about a year ago. Uh, it's another one of those things, just like I, I talked about earlier, where as I learn things, I like to try and share those things. And uh, you know, sometimes I've got people immediately around me that, that actually care about the things I'm learning about, and sometimes I don't. And so I've got to reach out a little bit further to find folks that are going to really care about some of those things that I'm learning when it comes to a business perspective and things like that. And so that's kind of what got me started down the email path. And so I do have a, an email that I send out. Um, it ends up being, you know, most of the time now weekly, it was every two weeks for a little while, but, uh, just basically trying to share some of the things that I'm learning, some things that I think people will find helpful, uh, any place that I can help somebody else to make an impact. That's what I want to do is try and put that out there. And so I've got that email that, uh, if anybody wants to sign up for that, you can sign up for that either at seanskaggs.net or you can sign up at this new website for the peer groups that you were talking about, which is called impactlegacyandmeaning.com. Either one of those places will get you on that email list if that's something that you're interested in. Right on. All right, so now let's, let's talk about your peer group. So you have a peer group that you're signed up. I, I saw your email come through the other day and and uh, jumped on to take a look at it and kind of poked around there a little bit. But talk about that peer group and, and what you're trying to accomplish with that with that group. Sure. So the peer groups run right along with the podcast. You know, the thing that started the podcast is also the thing that started the peer groups. But peer groups are something that I've been a part of uh, or mastermind groups or whatever you want to call them. That's something I've been a part of for a while. I'm actually part of uh, two or three different ones right now. I think three at the moment. And, you know, sometimes you get in those that are very industry specific. Sometimes you get in some that aren't specific. Sometimes you get in some that will last for you know, one or two days, and sometimes they can be ongoing for the rest of your life. Um, but what I'm trying to put together is a peer group that will help people to do the same things that we've been talking about, to make a bigger impact on their family, on their business, and on their community, all while building that personal and financial legacy that will last for generations. And so these peer groups, the thing about them is whenever you get in a group like that, it's not just you working on this problem. If you have a challenge ahead of you, you've got you plus 10 or 12 other people all working on helping you solve this problem. You're going to have people in that group that have experience you don't have, that have expertise that you don't have. And so you get to take advantage of those things. And at the same time, you get to help support other people whenever they're going through challenges. Uh, whatever their challenge is, you get to help them to go through that, to offer your experience and your expertise and then in addition to that, you know, you take advantage of everyone's ideas in there. That's one of the things I like about one of the peer groups that I'm in that's really industry specific. You know, the probably the best thing about that group is we've been able to take away a lot of great ideas. And so instead of, you know, if you and I, if we are, uh, if we're trading bananas, let's say, and I give you a banana and you give me a banana, we both still walk away with one banana. But if we're trading ideas and I give you an idea and you give me an idea, we both walk away with two different ideas, right? Right. And so now we've got two different opportunities to go and capitalize on. Right. And so whenever you get to a group that's got 10 or 12 people in it, now you've 10x that or you've 12x those ideas. And so you can walk away with lots more opportunity than you had. And so it's kind of a way to fast track progress that you make whenever you get into these peer groups. And it's also a place that you've got people where they're going to hold you accountable to your goals and to the things that you say you're going to do. And, you know, that's part of the kind of the scary part of these peer groups sometimes is that they will hold you accountable. And that's what we intend to do in this group is to hold people accountable. And so if you have a goal that you're going to work on, then, and you're not actually putting in the work to accomplish that goal, somebody's going to call you out and say, why aren't you doing that? If that's really a priority for you, then 
you need to be doing the work. And sometimes we all need somebody to help hold us accountable, right? Oh, yeah. We all let our priorities slip a little bit, a bit there. And so that's one of the other great things about these peer groups. And this is going to be a little bit different in that it's not industry specific. So there'll be people from all different industries in there. Um, it's also going to be uh, a group where we meet weekly. And so we'll be meeting weekly via video calls, uh, Zoom calls, just like what you and I are on right now. And so there's going to be that accountability there because we're meeting so often. And then in addition to that, there's going to be a theme for each month. Um, and if you're a part of the group, then I will send you a book that goes along with that theme and we'll all read that book together. There'll be a Facebook group where we can discuss those things. And then in addition to that, I plan to have two live events per year where we can all get together and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, build our relationships around some meals and around some shared time together and also bring in, you know, maybe some extra speakers and things like that to help us to Yep. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really exciting. And I think what you've got going on here, um, Sean, is, is, is something that's going to be really, uh, really impactful. And I think there's going to be a lot of good to come from that. So um, if folks want to find your podcast, where, where's the best way for them to find it? Well, to, the best way to find that podcast is just going to search either for my name, Sean Skaggs, or to search for Impact, Legacy, and Meaning on basically any platform that you want, or you can go to impactlegacyandmeaning.com. It's just all spelled out, Impact Legacy and Meaning. If you go there, you can. there's a link uh, to the podcast there on that website as well. Um, but we're on all the platforms, except I, I think I'm still waiting to get cleared by Spotify for some reason, but right. uh, I'm everywhere else. Yeah, that, that waiting, that, that getting cleared thing sometimes is a... Is an is an animal of its own, so it's a that's a that's a fun journey there in itself. All right, Sean. Well, you know, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I'm really excited about what you got going on here, and I look forward to uh, listening to uh, adding you to some of my favorites there on my on my podcast. All right, thanks, Casey. Appreciate you having me on. No problem, man. Take care of yourself. We will uh, definitely talk again, and we will catch you down the road, bud. Moving on. Welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett of Hackett Financial. And Sean is a uh, lucky man right here. The old Hurricane Dorian was was knocking at his door and it decided to go to the next place. So he's he's lucky that it that it uh, turned north like what like they uh, hopefully had predicted that it would be. But those people in the Bahamas sure uh, sure took a blow. So Sean, uh, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Mr. Casey. It's, uh, I'm glad I broke up with Dorian uh, early enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing was a mess, man. I tell you what, that was that hurricane is. Uh, it's been a while since we've seen a Cat Five hurricane that close to the U.S. and and uh, yeah. especially, you know, get that close to the U.S. and and you know, like you, like we were talking before we started recording, if if that would have kept going on its its western uh, trajectory, you live in Boca Raton, Florida, and that would have been basically right right around the eye of the our, storm you know our, our office would be uh, uh, in, in, in another location <laughs> <laughs> to say the least say the least so that was a pretty impressive storm too they were talking like 200 miles sustained winds and and the storm surge that that creates and all that kind of stuff so it was a uh, it was a mess but you know it's gonna have an effect on what we see happening agriculturally here in the u.s especially as it starts as it moving it moves north and i saw something in charlotte the other day they were talking about some uh, localized flooding and, and some stuff in that area too. So there, there's going to be some some hits that we're going to see. So we'll talk about the cotton market here in a little bit. But in the meantime, um, 
looks like we're uh, best friends with China again. We're going to go back to to the old bargaining table here and and do something awesome until I'm sure some tweet comes out that's the day beforehand that's going to say something very uh, very negative about whatever it is that that they're doing. So um, I guess I mean, talk about that a little bit. And how, I mean, obviously it's the boy that cried wolf now on the ag side of the business. For whatever reason, the financial markets just can't get enough of it. Whenever it comes in, it just takes off and runs. So, I guess talk about that dynamic and what we see happening there. Well, you know, the, the stock market is eternally hopeful uh, that somehow uh, one of these meetings, you know, I'm hopeful. I mean, yeah, I, me too. Yeah. It, it can always be a surprise. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, there's no, it's not, it doesn't mean there's a zero chance something won't happen. And, um, uh, so the stock market is wildly optimistic, and the commodity markets are wildly pessimistic because they didn't really react much at all right. uh, to it. So, so you have two markets with two entirely different outlooks on what these meetings might be or might come from it. And so um, thus far, the commodity markets have been right in not reacting to it. Um, you know, Maybe the stock market knows something this time that the commodity markets are, are ignoring. And, and this meeting, which was on, it was off, it was on, it was off. Uh, you know, maybe there's something more to it. I've, I've listened to some pretty smart people over the weekend uh, uh, who have changed their tune a little bit that, uh, that they feel that they're more optimistic. Maybe something would happen and they've been pretty negative up to this point. What, that doesn't mean they're right, but, you know, maybe there is something to this meeting that is a little different and um, we'll just have to wait and see. It's, it's never bad to be talking, uh, but obviously given the uh, year and a half of disappointment, one should not be, uh, you know, betting on that right now, uh, other than being hope, you know, uh, cautiously optimistic at this point. Yeah, I mean, politically, we start looking at the political spectrum here. I mean, god dang, if if there's if we go into the 2020 election season and there's not a deal with China done, and all these rural parts of America that that got that really voted for Trump and really got him in there, they're, and they're the ones kind of really kind of carrying this burden more than any other folks are because it's bigger than just the price of corn i mean that affects fertilizer dealers and seed dealers and equipment people and you know someone's the small town you know truck uh auto sales guy i mean there's just so on and so forth all the way down the trickle effect is huge i gotta think that there's going to be you know this idea that there's got to be a some level of a deal being they, they're not just talking every three months they think they've got to be some behind the scenes stuff going on that they're trying to figure some stuff out because it's not just us that are feeling i mean china's got they're they're hurting worse than we are and i mean start really start looking at the numbers of of what it's done to their economy and their gdp and and those kind of things so it's it's kind of beneficial for all of us to do it unfortunately we have kind of two guys here that are neither one of them are going to blink and um i guess we'll find out what happens I, i i really think at this point I, I think both sides would do a deal. Uh, what Trump wants, Trump wants the big stage that says, look, the master negotiator, oh, yeah. Look yeah. what I did. I beat the Chinese down like I told you that I would, and we won. Yeah. Chinese want to uh, you know, come off by saying, you know, we pushed back on the U.S. bullies. Uh, we held strong, um, and we were able to you know, hold our ground and that we are, in fact, ready to be a superpower and 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 you know we uh, you know we, we did a deal that was in our best interest so both sides i think right now are trying to find a way how does both sides be able to, to claim victory 
on the national stage for what their electorate, or in the case of China, you know, the Politburo and the mm -hmm. people would would view as positive outcome. And that's that's what I think is really happening. Or I think they kind of know what a deal looks like, but it's how does it portray in the public forum? Right. You know, I just I just want someone to take Trump's Twitter and just. And hold it for like three days after this deal is signed, because if it's get, if, they, if there's something on the table, he'll come right out and say, "Oh God, we kicked the shit out." Password for the next four weeks, so he can't yeah. do anything. On the next, he can't do any twittering for the next four weeks. Yeah, he's done. Sign the deal, then let him go after, after let him twitter all he wants afterwards. But right. he compulsion for a twitter at exactly the wrong moment. You yeah, having be the only one follower and it just retweets to himself that way he can see it and it makes him feel good. I guess I don't. I don't but know. kind of what we're looking for, Casey, you know, is we, we figure that the insiders, the smart money that we measure in our ag markets, we figure they probably would be the best to know if something's really going on or not. Yep. Uh, and they've been pretty bearish all summer long, you know, not suggesting anything good's going to happen. Uh, but if we start to see them really start buying aggressively and they really are kind of piling in all of a sudden, that would be kind of an indication to us that we see that leading up to this meeting that maybe something is different this time. So like, for example, you know, uh, you know, when the negotiations were going on last year, you know, they, they were bearish the whole time. So, so we're kind of looking to see, do we see that happening? If we do, then, then maybe we, we will shift being a little more optimistic thus far. We haven't seen that. Right. Seen that. It's been back and forth. So speaking of, of which of the markets, so, if you look at the corn and soybean market since that that August report came out, and then um, the the pro farmer tour report came out, um, there has just not been a overwhelming amount of uh, really anything positive happen. I mean, we've lost that we've lost a dollar on the on the uh, the corn market since uh, June, pretty much. Late July, or yeah. late late June, early July, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's been it's been back and forth, and you take a look at, at where we're at now. It is the interday volatility is is just crazy. I mean, you know, it'll start out a, a penny down and end up five up, and then it might start out five down, and midday you might be up ten, and then you're down a quarter by the time the day closes. So there's that interday volatility is is going just rapidly crazy. So I guess talk about that a little bit, and and what do you see making that slop around so much? Well, I think there's three primary things. One is the great uncertainty over the crop production. I mean, there's always uncertainty, but in a year like this, the uncertainty, you know, is great. You know, you have pro farmers saying it's a low 160s. You have the USDA saying it's upper 160s. You have other people say, uh, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. At the end of the day, you know, the, the, whether it's low 60s or upper 60s is, is a huge difference, and not, not to mention what the harvested acres are, will actually be. Mm -hmm. uh, and we really won't get an answer to that until we get the harvesters really rolling, combines rolling, and that really won't happen until October. We're going to get some real factual evidence. So up until that point, we're just going to continue to speculate on who's right. But for now, the U.S. the, the market is saying we're going to assume the USDA is right until proven wrong and they've hit the market. That's the one thing. Second thing is, obviously, we know the crop is extremely behind. It's one of the top four uh, slowest developing crops since 1980, both for soybeans and corn. And so obviously how weather plays out into the end of September to the first part of October in terms of frost potential, should it happen or not, I think the market is kind of watching every single forecast and you know, cool air comes in and it, then it, they take it away. And so I think there's that going on. And then we've had some wild currency moves, Casey. Yeah. Um, you know, the dollar had this big surge early in the week, had this big crash, you know, in the last couple of days. Um, currency is moving all over the place. Um, 
you know, that has a lot to do with this intraday volatility that you're talking about. Because currencies have a lot to do with how a lot of these algorithmic traders, you know, use correlations to decide whether to buy or sell in, in a given day. And so I think when you put all of that together, um, it's just mass confusion. And so when you have mass confusion, the market is very schizophrenic. It's not really sure what it wants to do, but it but it does know something big is going to to break from this, and it just doesn't know what it wants to do right now. Yep. But I would say, I would say, uh, being down here in corn, especially, you know, this, you know, three fifty area, you know, I'm sure is you know th this is kind of the area that we launched uh, the, the market higher back in late April, early May. It's gonna be pretty yep. hard for us to beat up. See that we're going to break that level for now until, unless that we that the crop is confirmed to be upper one sixties or higher later on in October, November when the actual results come in. Things can be pretty hard for the market to break much lower than that. So I think we're probably going to base out here and and see if we can't muster up a rally based upon weather or maybe something positive with China, maybe something the dollar continues to roll over here, something like that. It, it looks to me like we're set up for some kind of a bounce. Yep. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> It seems like the one thing that that we we haven't talked about that's not talked about as much in the news um, until here of late is, is soybeans. And I saw a tweet out the other day, and I can't remember who put it out there, but it was. And I'm trying to pull this from memory, so bear with me here, folks. But it was something like uh, three million acres of soybeans haven't flowered yet, and ten million acres haven't haven't had any pods produced on it yet. Um, that's that's thirteen million bushel or million acres of of soybeans that. This is as of September first that aren't going to produce right. So um, anything probably at that point um, of any kind of real measure. So, but the soybean market still just gets kicked hard every single day. So I guess talk about the soybean market and what do you see some of there? I mean, the, there there seems like the scientific data is out there um, that we're not going to have the yield that that we've talked about. I mean, even the pro farmer tour was even talked about. You know, we're not going to have. Uh, we could have a, a big, a big um, how'd they put it? We could have a, a, a average size crop, um, but it all depends on how late the frost comes or how early the frost comes. And I'm like, when I read that, it really left me with more questions than I guess answers when I walked out, when I walked away from that report. So soybeans, man, what what's, I guess, why is there so negative, such a negative vibe there? Well, I mean, it actually is the slowest developing soybean crop since 1980. It is the slowest. Uh, corn is not the slowest. Corn is, I think, the slowest. But soybeans is the developing crop since 19. So, you know, how anyone can really determine yield on soybeans at this juncture, forgetting, you know, you just mentioned, you know, the, 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 the ones that haven't, you know, bloomed yet, that sort of thing, which comes down to what acres are actually harvestable or not. I mean, I, I just think that because it's such an open box of uncertainty, the market is just putting it off to the side right now. And so long as there's no frost forecast, they're going to trade soybeans based upon how the, the Chinese situation is going um, uh, until they either see a weather uh, forecast for some cold weather to come in or until we see some, some actual yields. Like, oh, wait, wait. So the you know, USDA was looking for 50 bushel acre in this area and it's coming in at 35 or 40 or whatever the number is. So I, I think for right now, it's just, it's just not wanting to – it doesn't know what to do. With this crop, other than it, it it's just going to trade uh, the trade war uh, at this point, or or weather forecast because it doesn't know what to make of it. The 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 market has been used to the soy market always turns out okay. It right. always turns out okay. It always finds a way. It always it gets through the trade. Even 2012, 
you know, that horrific drought that we had, you know, people were calling for soybean yields in the low 30s. It turned out to be in the, you know, mid upper 40, uh, low to mid 40s. And so, so the market just assumes, oh, soybeans will be fine. Um, maybe it will, maybe it won't, but it's taking that idea that we're going to assume soybeans will make it through because it always does. Every time we bet against it, we've been wrong until we get clear evidence or we get a weather forecast that tells us differently. So I think that's why soybeans just are unable to overcome, uh, you know, overcome, you know, this price barrier, um, for that reason at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's definitely a, it's a tra- just, it's, it's one of those things, but this is a definitely wait and see season, you know, man, across the board. It is. And we talked about this many months ago. Oh, yeah. This would not be resolved in September. Like it normally is. It may, I don't think it's going to really be resolved in October. We'll get some yields by then. Mm-hmm. Certainly not enough to make a grand conclusion. It's not going to be until November that we get, I think a much more of a hardcore understanding of what the yields really are like. And obviously we'll know by that point when the first frost actually did hit right. and what came from all of that. And so, so when you're in the waiting game uh, at a time when you have uh, a general bearish environment for overall commodities and ag markets in general um, and, and, and trade war uncertainty, you know, the market's going to just not be willing to buy. I, I think at this point, the only thing that's going to make uh Grain markets really come off the, the the bottom here. Short term is get cold weather forecast. Right now, that's what I think we need to see a cold weather forecast. Yep. that so, will get it going. And or you know the the, the Chinese come mm-hmm. and you know we're you know dramatic progress. We're ready to sign something, but I mean, but that's a month from now. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think it's got to be a cold cold weather forecast right now. It's gonna. I don't think we go much lower. But I think we just bottom until we get a cold weather forecast, at least for the next couple of weeks. Speaking of cold weather forecasts, you know, I've watched a lot of stuff, especially from the guys out at BAM Weather, where they're looking at uh, long-range dew points and what that looks like. And up in the northern part of the United States, those dew points are getting lower and lower and lower, which tells you that 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 cold air is starting to creep its way down faster and faster and faster. And I'll be honest with you, I go run in the morning, and, you know, last week when I was running, I could see my breath, you know. So we're talking like 40-degree yeah, you know temperatures and um, my eyes sweat like like a pig anyway. So when I'm when I'm out there, you know, I look like a giant steam box running around anyway. So it's, I mean, yeah. it was it was. I got out of my truck and I'm like, man, I should have probably worn a, a long sleeve shirt out here to go run. Of course, I got warm when I ran, but you know, it was it was uh, shockingly cool for the uh, late uh, late August like it was. So it's uh, there is there is some signs that there could be some of that stuff happening now. You know the weather can change in in, a, in an instant. So, but I tell you our our weather pattern we've had here in Nebraska where I'm at in the Panhandle for every day that we have of of ninety to hundred degree temperatures, which I think we've had one or two days of hundred degree temperatures. But like that ninety five ninety seven degree day, if we have one of those days, we have two or three days of high seventies low eighties. You know, so yeah. after on the backside of that, so yeah. and. It's just been a weird pattern. So, uh, corn looks good from the road. Edible beans look good from the road, except for what didn't get held out. But you go out and start looking at the what's there, and, and the heat units aren't there, right? To to really start fill, and that, I think that's going to start play showing itself here um, as as the stuff moves north. The more, more further north you go, the more issues you start having. The guys right. down in Texas and and you know southern Kansas, Oklahoma, those kind of things, they didn't yeah. have the same weather pattern that the northern part of the united states did so it'd be interesting i'm looking forward to see what happens there yeah and um you know we as we talked about i think last time we you know there, there's a couple of atmospheric oscillations we monitor on a weekly basis the eastern pacific oscillation the arctic oscillation and the 
Western Pacific Oscillation, when they go in a negative phase, they tend to imp- increase the odds of colder air coming in. Uh, we just got the latest readings that comes out twice a week. It just got the latest readings last night. And right now, they're kind of showing a dip into negative territory kind of in the final week of September. So that, to us, would be maybe a, um, a time to be a little more, you know, kind of paying attention uh, for, you know, we always look at the market reacts to a two-week forecast. So middle of September, a two-week forecast takes you to the to the end of September. We would be kind of looking for maybe some kind of a cold weather forecast by mid-month that says that maybe there's a possibility that we could get some frost coming in. And so right now, that's our best guess based upon the way the, the models are pushing these oscillators in negative territory at the end of the month where maybe something could surface or the markets might start to put in some weather premium in versus right now where there's almost no weather premium at all. So, yeah, that's crazy. So the other factor here that, that we look at is, is wheat and, you know, the wheat production for the years is pretty well done. They've harvested everything. There's some stuff still going up in far northern United States, up into Canada a little bit. But um, the wheat market has just been, it's been a leader and it's been a follower and it's been the dog that gets kicked when, when you when, the, when everybody comes home. So I guess it's yeah. kind of here, there and everywhere. So talk about the wheat market a little bit and what you see happening there. Yeah, remember winter wheat's a different cycle because you know it's 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 ended in the in the fall. It's harvested in the you know late spring summer, and so now harvest is over. So it kind of it kind of has a little bit of a different um, cycle to it, and it tends to bottom first uh, because harvest happens first. Um, the, the problem with wheat is you know it's it's such a global market. So many countries grow a lot of it, and when you have significant currency fluctuations like we've been having. In this case, not good, meaning right. strong or weak foreign currencies. It just makes our export prices very hard to compete. Um, and I think some of that's been going on here the last week. That you know the dollar it was rocketing higher until the last couple of days. Um, and of course, the wheat market rallied uh, once the dollar rolled over. But I, I think it's a currency problem where the U.S. price is trying to stay competitive because we have all this wheat freshly harvested that we want to sell, and we got to stay competitive right now to move it. Um, and, and, and so short term, that's kind of what's, what's you know, the currency is really, you know, balancing the, the wheat market around right now. So, yep. Yeah. It's kind of going crazy. So, all right. So cotton is the other thing that we talk about when you're on here and with what we see happening in the marketplace right now, um, you know, we're still the global recession thing is still on, hasn't, hasn't left the table yet. People are still talking about that. I was telling us talking about a slowdown in the U S based on, um, really what we see with the trade war that, that's really what's what's driving that more than anything um, now we got the hurricane hurricane Dorian uh, making its way up the eastern seaboard and, and hitting some critical um, areas of, of cotton production so I guess talk about cotton a little bit what you see happening there and, and what effects do you see a the hurricane happening and be some of the dry weather we're seeing over on the other side of the globe from a seasonal perspective, if we just look at what normal trading, what cotton normally does in a normal year, not saying this is a normal year, but right. in a normal year, you know, it likes to make harvest lows since the September, October timeframe. This is when it likes to make the low. So, so we are, we're, we probably have made the low. You know, I think we got down to 55 cents there for one brief second and then we rallied back up in the upper fifties, but we probably made the low, uh, the, the crop conditions in the U.S. have fallen markedly in the last couple of weeks because of the hot, dry weather in Texas and some of this moisture that's coming to the southeast. It looks like the hot, dry weather in Texas is going to continue. It uh, looks like the crop deterioration is going to continue. The bowls are going to be opening up more, um, and there's still going to be potential for hurricane 
uh, threats to come into the southeast, and uh, you know some of the mo- some of the models are calling for a storm to move into the Gulf. You know, so there's just there's so much going on. It's really hard to see the the, the cotton market, you know, going any lower than it already has. And I think there's a lot of reasons for it to start going higher in in in, um, in India, which is just amazing that we had this really uh, dry, uh, hot first half of the monsoon season, and now we have flooding rains in the key. Uh, cotton area of Gujarat, and mm-hmm. it just keeps raining. It just keeps raining. Of course, now it's really, uh, uh, you know, they needed the rain before, but now they don't need the rain now because the bowls are ready to open and it's just not what right. you need right now. And so, yep. so a lot of crop problems, but the market has been unwilling to trade that because it just, it just can't seem to get itself over this economic fear, this trade war fear. Um, but I think that it will. You know, I think that it will. I think we probably are beginning some kind of a constructive basing pattern. We are off the lows. And, and I do think that as these crop conditions can, can continue to deteriorate, uh, the market's likely to pop its head up, uh, you know, back into the 60s. Um, you know, not calling for a big, massive bull market, but certainly, you know, an improved pricing environment as we move along here into the fall. So, yeah. Well, that's cool, man. I think it's like everything else you got to wait and see what's going to happen and uh you know i it's it's a crazy uh it's a crazy world we live in right now man when you start looking at these commodity prices yeah i mean you know if one is just kind of looking for a nice uh normal uh uh, easygoing uh normal functioning uh, global economy and markets this is not what we have right now we just don't have that we have every day there's something that's coming out that's it's an impacting markets. It's changing things. It's you hear the Federal Reserve say this. You hear Trump say that. You hear she say this, and you know, and, and all of them, you know, have impacts on the markets. So it's um, um you know, it, it's going to keep volatility high. Uh, right now, we're experiencing the downside part of that volatility, which is good for the buy side. If you're on the buy side of the equation, we experienced some of the upside volatility earlier in the in the late spring and the early summer. Um, and we do expect we're going to get some upside volatility again. So, so I just think the word of the day from all of this is um, volatility is here to stay. Um, it's not all down. It's not all up. There's going to be opportunities to do things on both sides. Be ready. Be prepared. Um, and uh, and don't get too uh, don't get too um, uh, comfortable with trending markets until we get some clarity on some of these things, which um, we have not been able to get clarity on right now. Yeah. So. So the cattle market, uh, if you take a look at what's going on there, about was it two or three weeks ago, we had that big Tyson fire uh, over there in uh, western Kansas, and uh, that, that sent a big ripple through the uh, entire cattle complex, um, but yet we are butchering the same number of calf animals that we've had uh, with that machine online while it's come back up, So, but the cattle market hasn't responded to that yet. Packers seem to be making some, some pretty good margins, but uh, the overall market hasn't really seen that that rebound that, that you think you'd see when things got back to normal. So I guess talk about that cattle complex a little bit. We see happening there. It is strange, Casey. I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that the other plants did make up the slack, take up the slack. We're able to, you know, of course, we have all time record margins uh, of all time. And I mean, the margins doubled, I think two days after the fire um, right. and they make all kinds of money yet. So, so, so one would say, well, the cattle market should be rallying. Yet, because Tyson said their plant won't be up and running fully until, I think, January, they said, the market views that as being a negative. Um, very strange behavior. I, yeah. I you, you know, I, I don't, 
you know, I, I think there's an investigation going on. Right. Funny business going on. Yeah. I know that the USDA is investigating what's happening because it really doesn't make any no, sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It just it sounds like gouging to me. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything, but it doesn't make sense to me that if we're moving the same through animals, even if it's in different locations. I understand the basis could be wider in Kansas for mm-hmm. some. I get all that, but 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 animal markets acting uh, should be acting better. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I think that eventually will, and 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 and, uh, but un, it's been unable to do it. The smart money has been buying uh, a little more aggressively, or almost to a point where we'd be triggering a buy signal. Maybe when we get the data from the commitment of traders tonight, we we may trigger that. So we're kind of looking for that, maybe to give us a clue of when this condition that we're in uh, is over. But um, I, I would think it has to be over soon. I don't think they uh, you can keep. Uh, you know, these margins this wide forever, I think there's going to be, uh, there's going to have to be some, some contracting of it over time. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a, that's just a weird thing. And, and even more weird is the, uh, is the effect that the, uh, AFS is having on, on the hog market. I mean, you, last report I heard out of China, which you don't really hear much about that anymore, but the last report I heard was it's, it's still worse than we thought. And it, every time you get a report, it's, it's worse than we thought. And, I don't know how much worse it can get, but obviously it can get a lot worse, I guess. But we haven't seen a rebound in the hog market, though, because of it. They are importing record amounts of pork, just not from the U.S. Right. They've been going down to, to Brazil, and Brazil's been a willing seller. Um, at you know, Right now, Brazil's been a willing seller of just about everything because the, the, the real has been crushed. So right. they've been record amounts of corn. If you look at corn exports, soybean exports, beef exports, Pork exports that all have a parabolic rise here in the last mm-hmm. couple of months. So what it says to me, Casey, says that they're front end loading sales. They're 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 front end loading because they want to try to gain market share. They're they're trying to gain market share, but at some point, you know, they, they they're gonna they're gonna have to pull back from that. And once they pull back from that, and and the Chinese can't buy those quantities at the rate that they've been, the only other place that can sell those kind of quantities would be the U.S. So so I think that that's that whole Ariel is delayed the inevitable, but eventually they will have to come back to the U.S. and buy a lot more pork. But it has been frustrating that everything has happened the way one would have thought. They are buying tons of pork, but the trade war has forced them to emphasize Brazil over the U.S. And Brazil's made a strategic decision to oversell, and it's right. kept us out of the market. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's a uh, the thing about Brazil too is like it's not like it's the most stable place on the planet. I mean, they got. They got pissed off people everywhere down there, whether it's the rainforest burning the rainforest off or yeah. corruption with the government. And this, I mean, there's just all kinds of crazy things happening down there. And I think the last thing they want to throw into that mix is, is people that get hungry and, and pr- prices of food rising up, especially when your, your, uh, your buying power of your currency is just every day getting less and less and less. So right. I, I got to think sooner or later, they're going to have to sit back and say like, okay, we got enough going on here. Let's not, uh, Let's not piss people off over the price of food or lack of thereof, and, and move on to something different. And and you know, it was, uh, smart money has been had been absent in hogs for a good portion of the summer, but they have come alive in the last two to three weeks and been buying fairly aggressively here. And so once again, the livestock sector is finally showing a heartbeat with the insiders starting to buy. And it, and our best guess is that we're probably going to trigger some buy signals later this month. That probably is going to trigger the, the finally trigger a move that you know has been long in coming and and been delayed. But 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 it, it, it looks like it could be a strong finish to the year if um, if if our smart money indicators uh, 
you know, continues to, to the way that looks like. I, th- I think it could be a, a good finish to the year. At least. So. Right on. All right, Sean. Well, good stuff as usual. Folks want to reach out to you, pick your brain, and, and maybe uh, get your ideas of what's going on. What's the best way to do that? Uh, our website at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. A lot of good information on there, and, and hopefully the way we look at markets can be of value to your listeners. Yep. So. Good stuff there. Go out there and, and get to see what you can do. I get an email from him with some really good information he lays out there, and, and really, Sean does a great job of walking uh, walking you through that. And if I can understand it, believe me, anybody can understand it. So good stuff there. So, Sean, take care of yourself. Sean, hack it, hack it financial. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks, bud. Look forward to it, Casey. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast, now part of the Global Ag Network. If you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel and watch Market Roundup with Chip Mellinger, Sean Hackett, and Angie Setzer. Also, Tax News with Glenn Birnbaum. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, and globalagnetwork.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here.